which is the worst thing that can happen to you when right. you're a rookie coach. You don't want to upset somebody that's good. Everybody thinks you're, you're a pretty good coach. And they found out a couple of weeks later. Welcome to the SI Genesis podcast, featuring interviews with alumni, teachers, and staff from San Ignatius College Preparatory in San Francisco with your host, Joe Vollard. Today's guest is none other than the Wizard of Westlake. Now I think about it, we didn't even talk about how we got that moniker in this interview. There's so much to, to cover with Bob. Bob Drucker, class of 1958, iconic SI figure, best known as a basketball coach, but was a fantastic teacher, counselor, and mentor. Bob Drucker. What was SI like for you? Well, I had a great time. I just didn't do any homework. <laughs> I was, you know, treasurer of the student body. I was in the sanctuary society. I was in the sodality. I was in the block club because I played basketball. And uh, so I had a great time, you know, and I went to every event there was except the, the dances. And I, I, was, I was socially uh, shy in those days. But um, any any uh, teachers stick out with you? Yeah, actually, um, there were a couple. I had a really good English teacher my freshman year, a Jesuit scholastic, Gene Brown, or Gene. Uh, uh, yeah, his name was Brown, Mr. Brown. He was good. And then I had the sophomore year, I had Uncle Frank. Mm-hmm. And he was I actually, it was a weird sophomore year. Uh, the I had Mr. Welsh, who was a Jesuit scholastic, who was also an assistant baseball coach to Mr. Keating. Uh, he taught civics the first semester, and then Fra- Uncle Frank walks in the second semester teaching oh, U.S. history. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know what happened to him. Uh, and then, uh, and then you know who was a great teacher? There's a guy named Gene Bianchi. He was a Jesuit. It was actually ordained, and he's still. I don't. I think he passed, but but he was he was big in in uh, contemporary theology hmm. and ahead of his time. And he walks in in our senior year, second semester and teaches sociology. Oh, wow. And he was terrific. And so he stood out and then had JB for math. And so uncle Frank and JB were really two of the few laymen there mm-hmm. with a big history. And they had these totally unique teaching styles and, uh, uh, which we loved. You know. so, so you start, um, flash forward a little bit, you start teaching in 65, Five. fall of 65? Fall of 65. And it's you, uh, Chuck Murphy, Leo start at the same time. Was uh, Tony Sowers? Tony Sowers Tony started, started then. and a bunch of Jesuits then. So, so you start teaching. Did how, did you have any experience before that teaching? No. no. So you just threw it in the classroom? No, I just threw it in there. Who did you model yourself after? I, you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> you know, I was teaching world history. I had five classes of world history. Were you a history major? Yes. So at least you had that. I, I had that going forward. I had a PE minor from USF. So, um, so the world history wasn't bad, but McFadden was my mentor. He, mm-hmm. would be, he, would, he would come in. We had a department chair, but they didn't do any of that stuff in those days. So McFadden would come in and just kind of nurture me along and bring me in and encourage me. And so I started really working. And um, 
And they're always jealous of Chuck because Chuck was such a natural. He, he was teaching juniors as a freshman teacher. And he's walking <laughs> he's in there. He's only like four years older than Yeah, and, and he knew the subject, which I didn't have a great grasp on. And so, uh, uh, and then, you know, Leo was teaching English. But, you know, he just plugged away. And, and you get better at it. Yeah, and, you know, Father Becker helped me out. Mm-hmm. He was an English teacher, also with a unique style of teaching, but he encouraged me too. And, um, you know, uh, there were a couple other guys that were scholastics that you, you collaborated with because mm-hmm. there wasn't much. Go, of, everybody's going through the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so when, when I describe SI in 65, it was really kind of a mom and pop store, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure you can't say that. But, all credit due to Ed McFadden, not just because I'm biased because he hired, hired me and should had no business doing it, but he was a St. Anne's guy. But I interviewed well with him because I made him relax. Mm-hmm. You know, I made him laugh. And I, you know, I did St. Anne's guy. I, I kind of knew his dad from Boy Scouts and all that. And uh, but he, he liked me. And he, he was willing to take a chance, you know, and I, you know, I was history and PE and was did it, you coach it all that first year? No, he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't, wouldn't let you, right? He wouldn't let us yeah. do any of that. So then your second year, you start coaching. Second year I started. Yeah. My second year, all of a sudden, yeah, 65, 66, 66, 67, Dan Bowamini, who was teaching us history. He went to USF, USF to coach. Okay. So I throw my hat in the ring after having three years experience at St. Cecilia's. Okay. Which I love. I coach baseball and basketball in St. Cecilia's. So there, and that's a whole nother side note, because there's a great history. That's when CYO gets going, right? Exactly. And you've got like you, Archie Keene, I know, was coaching, and Jim Bjorkwas came out of that. Ron Rosa came out yeah, of that. Yeah. Uh Ron Izola came yeah. out of that. Um so yeah, that was really a a, a good time. And and Ron Izola was the greatest community organizer ever because he had a gym. So we'd have a pre-CYO league, and we'd have CYO, and then he'd have a post-CYO league. So I spent more time in the Epiphany gym than most people have in their life. And, and you know, taking my 55 Chevrolet Plymouth and putting 10, 12, 14 kids in there and driving, <laughs> driving across town. And, uh, but yeah, that's when, and, you know, the girls started playing and then soccer started going yeah. and uh, they had some leader, you know, Monsignor Armstrong was a really great leader. And uh, he, he encouraged all of us, you know, to continue with CYO and Father Keene from Holy Name encouraged, you know, Pete Murray and Owen O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Those guys started coaching when they were freshmen and sophomore in high school. Wow. You know, and Pete and Owen were my, in, they were both graduated of class 57, Holy Name. I was working at Commons Drugstore out in the neighborhood, and I knew them, and I started going to the games, and that's where I started to get interested in going, you know, I can do this, and I can mm-hmm. do that. And I had more playing experience than either of them. So when I got out of the Army, I went back to USF. I went back to day school and uh, paid my own tuition Mm -hmm. until my last semester. And my mother said, well, pay your tuition because if you graduate. So I finally did. And then I got a call 
from somebody to go to uh, Pete Murray called and say, hey, there's job saying to see this you might like. So I went up there and uh, interviewed with the nun and she hired me on the spot. And we had wonderful kids, big families and uh, lots of kids on my team. And was that just coaching or did you teach there as well? No, I just coached. Yeah. yeah. I was working at the pharmacy seven, six, you know, about five days, five days a week. And, uh, and then I was coaching in the afternoon, and then I uh, actually no, I, what I had switched. I, I was still working the comms on weekends, so except for game days. So I was working seven days a week, yeah. five days coaching, and then Saturday and Sunday I'd be at the pharmacy because they were open at night as well. So. And so, how'd you find out about the SI job? Believe it or not, I was talking to Jim McDonald's at the Partles Bar one night. And he had just been hired at SI. And I said, geez, I would really love that, to, to give that a try, because I had loved the school so much, the experience of the school. So he goes, hey, you need to apply because they're looking, you know, they're, they're hiring. They're hiring. Yeah. And so I did. I called Father Carlin, who was the assistant principal when I was a senior, and I used to work with him counting money for mm. tickets in his office. So he, you know, he was New my guy. Yeah. And uh, so then I interviewed with this other priest who's a St. Anne's guy. And, uh, and they hired me in May of 65. I was working at the drugstore and my mother calls the drugstore and said, Robert, you have to get over to school for an interview. So I had to tell the pharmacist I'm leaving. He goes, you can't go. And I said, I'm going, I got a job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here. Carl, I said, I'm going. <laughs> And yeah. you've told the story before. you got to tell it because um, it involves Carlin and McFadden. Because you get hired, and it's the Stanley Street campus. Mm-hmm. You know, in your first couple of years, few years there. Four years there. Yeah. But you tell a story about when they were um, voting on uh, or somehow deciding to come here. Yes. Um, Weren't you McFadden listening in the side yeah, room yes, or something like yes, that? Yes, we were. Well, yes, we were. That's a, that's a memory burned in my head. Like, couldn't believe it. First of all, McFadden used to take a Chuck and I out to dinner because uh, it was social life for him. And we'd go to the Spinnaker. Spinnaker, yeah. And we'd get the point table. And so that topic came up that, we, you know, we we're going to go, we we're going to move. And the number was always like five millions or what's going to be five million or six million or whatever. So one night, one day McFadden says, hey, let's go to dinner tonight. Meet me in my office. So I I, I drove over there and uh, parked my car, went into the office. Chuck had a new car and Chuck was late. So he wasn't there, but he eventually picked us up. So I walk into McFadden's office. He turns on the squawk box. And uh, before that, I remember Bill McDonald and Father Carlin walking down the hallway from south north into the library, you know, and there's all these contractors that are already in Brother Sullivan's library, and they're going to do the bids. And so McFadden sitting there with his pencil and his legal pad, and you it looked like, and, and, yeah, and I'm going, I, I felt it. 
I felt that I said, this is a big t- moment. Yeah. You know, we're going to move. And I'm watching these guys walk down the hall. And poor Father Carlin, you know, he looked like he was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. He didn't know what was going to happen. But he had put together a pretty good board in yeah. the meantime, a really a wonderful group of people. And uh, who's on the plaque on the wall yeah. there about the school. And McFadden starts writing the numbers because they had a they had an original bid for the school, and then there was some supplemental stuff that was going to add on with another million bucks. I don't know if that was the swimming pool or what the heck it was, or was that gym, or was the library, whatever. But anyway, McFadden going, eh, okay. And, uh, you know, then we went out to dinner, and then all of that came, came together. But it was, it was really an exciting time because that's uh, – and that's how I'd say McFadden and Carlin are the guys, you know, they're yeah. just. Uh, uh, well, they, they built the campus. They, they built the SI that, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People came to know yeah, 70s yeah, and 80s, yeah. right? And Father Carlin, of course, I go down to sign my contract <laughs> in, in his office, which was downstairs in the basement of the old SI. And uh, he's sitting there and he signed the contract. He goes, wait, hey, Bob. I've got about four more houses to visit because he was running this first capital campaign. And he says, they're all over in Visitation Valley. Would you would you want to go over and visit those families for me? And I'm going, <laughs> I'm first of all, first of all, I'd do anything Father Carlin told us because yeah. when he was the dean there, there was, <laughs> yeah, there was no fooling around. Yeah. You did what he said. So, so I went over there and I visited four families and, uh, in fact, yeah, a couple of them I still remember and, uh, I was frightened to death. <laughs> so I get them, I put my suit and tie on and I get my, my old flimsy Plymouth and I drive out to a neighborhood I know nothing about across the street from the cow palace. <laughs> and so I visited these four families and they were really wonderful and, so I got like 400 bucks, you know, and I felt like one, one guy had kids in the seminary and he was giving money to them. And he said, I'll give you $20. It's fine. But thank you very much. And another family gave, made a pledge and the other two couldn't. So I, and I come back and I go, Hey father, you know, I said, I only got 400 bucks. He goes, Hey, that's great. You know, <laughs> he was very encouraging. And I still have that plaque, you know, in my room. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give that plaque to the school. And so I, 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 that's in my room, my basketball trophy from the examiner basketball school. And that plaque are two <laughs> of the prizes that I have, you know, in my room because they, uh, they represent Significant. So you, so you start. Um, so you, Belwamini takes off for USF. You threw your hat in the ring. You get the job, and sixty-seven is your first group of guys. Yes. Right? Yes. And so what? Like, what was that like to get started coaching? I had no idea what I was doing. So I was just working on my own playing experiences, and you know what you know what you're supposed to do, but. Um, you know, I had good communication with JB and Leo always. So uniforms and protocol were kind of taken care of in those days, yeah. you know, like they still are to a, to a certain extent, but it was much, much simpler. 
So I just had to, you know, basically have tryouts for summer league. If no, do we have some? Yeah, we did have summer league that year. And, um, you know, sort out the team. And that was tough because we had a really good junior class with Deck and Thomason and Fairbuff and uh, Dennis Dolan had mm-hmm. played four years of varsity basketball. And I'm a rookie. And then uh, we had, uh, we had, I had three seniors, Mike Silvestri, John Circus, Fireman, and Louis Carbo. And so we put it together. And uh, I didn't know any offense, any man-to-man offense. So I did some work on that, looked around, asked some questions, read some books. And uh, I found the shuffle, which almost got me fired. <laughs> but uh, I knew it well. And uh, the guy still, some guys still run it. And I still get kidded about that, too, because we'd run and run and run and run. And, run up the top. and I overcoached. But the first year... I did one thing really well, and that was smart. Louis Carbo was a little guard, and he was really quick, and he could really handle the ball. He could really penetrate. He could really break a press. So I said, Louis, you dribble. And John Circus, who was our quarterback and was having shoulder problems, he was a really good shooter and never really had a chance to play a lot. So I'd let John shoot. I'm going to let Louie dribble, and we went like five and four. Hmm. And we didn't make the playoffs, but uh, it was a strong league then at the time. But we did beat Sacred Heart, and that was a big one. And we beat my first game, league game, was against Lincoln, who had been the two-time champs. And we played them in the first game, and we beat them. Hmm. And Decky watches, uh, I forget the kid's name, uh, (laughs) Anyway, one kid was a star. So at halftime, I go in the locker room when I'm going, we're going boxing one. Deck, you watch, uh, what's his name? I forget his name. Anyway, Deck will tell you. And uh, we never practiced it. They didn't know. I said, you go here, you go here, you go there. Deck, you would take care of him. And and the, the kids only made two points, two baskets in <laughs> second half, four points or something <laughs> like that. And they, they were totally confused. I remember Greg Medved, the kid who played for Lincoln. And I I just saw him there, and he was standing. He's kind of bewildered. What's going on here? You know? <laughs> What's his name? Can't get the ball to, to us. I think. Yeah. So we won that game, and uh, – which is the worst thing that can happen to you when right. a rookie coach. You don't want to upset somebody that's good. Everybody thinks you're, you're a pretty good coach. And they found out a couple of weeks later. There was a great culture of coaches, though, right? Oh, yeah. You had Melomini at USF. I know, you know, Rene is, you know, probably kept in touch with. And, yeah. You know, there's just a, a bunch of guys that got into coaching. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked about that very beautifully Saturday in your alumni remarks, by the way. Those were really great. And that, you know, that was a small segment of the network, the yeah. worldwide, the yeah. global Jesuit network. And uh, so I, I did. I talked to a lot of people. Bernie Schneider. Pete around, Pete Schneider. right? Hey, yeah, Bernie Schneider. Yeah, yeah I, didn't, I didn't use uh, young Pete, but uh, I got to know young Pete and uh, – yeah, and it it just kind of expanded, and um, you know, I started going to the clinics and uh, reading some books, and, and I watched TV a lot, you know, writing stuff down that I saw that I liked, and to kind of piece it when, together. When did you think like you had it 
because it takes a while, right? Yeah. It takes a few years and you got to make your mistakes and then you just start, at, you know, honing in on the edges of practice, right? You start to practice for stuff you know is going to come up in games. Right. I know by the time I played for you in the 80s, we spent more time practicing the last 30 seconds in the, minute, in yeah. the last minute of the yeah. game than anything else. So yeah. When it came around in the game, like, all right, we've done this a hundred times, you know, and it was uh, a second fiddle. Yeah. When did you feel like you kind of came into your own? Well, well, you know, two things about that. I remember sitting, standing on the sidelines early in my career in the first couple of years and going and watching these guys. And I'm thinking, my guys are just not prepared yet. You know, they just, that's not a feeling about that. There's more things I do for a game, particularly when you fall behind by 10 and stuff like mm-hmm. that, you know. And the other one was that happened deep into my career. It was like, in the 80s, Ralph Miller, the head coach at Oregon State, Ralph Miller Court, legend, great coach, crotchety old guy, walks into my office trying to recruit Levy Middlebrooks, and he lights up a cigarette, and we start talking in my office up here on the second floor, and we start talking about coaching, and he goes, takes 10 years to become a good basketball coach. I go, huh? Why is that? He goes, how many games you play a year? He, I said 25 or 30. He goes, well, how many close games you have? You know, three or four. So he goes, there you go. You, you learn how to coach when you're. Mm-hmm. It's close. When it's close. It's under the gun, you know. And, uh, you know, that was really, and I said that to a lot of people. And it was a really piece of wisdom about coaching. And uh, so I, I I didn't feel like I, I, the switch went on. The switch went on in about 72. I had a small team. I had a 6-2 center, Marco Gualco. I had a uh, Victor Esclamano was a, like a 5-9 forward. Paul Baldock, he was like a 5-8, 5-9 forward. And, uh, Dr. Jim Feeney was a guard, and Bobby Mazzara, and I had, uh, Tommy Portman was a reserve. And they, they, they physically were not very good, but they were really smart, and they were great free-throw shooters. Hmm. And I tried a, a, a theory. We pressed all game, and then we held the ball. You know, keep them close. And we won a bunch of games. <laughs> won a bunch of games. They were car- we, they became the cardiac cats. And so, anyway, that was a big one because 70, 70, 71 were really bad for me. I thought I had good teams, and I didn't, and I didn't get anything out of them. And we didn't work hard enough, and uh, and they didn't work hard enough. And so um, – and I had a couple of teams like that. And I imagine, like, if you had them later, like 10 years later, yeah. you would have done better, You and I right? talked you about know, that, yeah. yeah. You had made a lot of changes. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. So, uh, and then uh, in 73, I had a an average team, but we did really well. In 74, I had a team we should have won it. And that's always broken my heart because uh, we were so close. We were leading going in the fourth quarter and ran out of gas because we had to play an extra game in the, in the playoffs. 
we only made three points in the fourth quarter. We were up about 10 and lost. But uh, that was a really good team uh, with uh, Eddie Silva and Rich Tilgen and uh, uh, Mike Sanchez and uh, I forget. Did you have any, were any juniors playing on that team? Your 75 guys? Yeah. Um, yeah, my 75 guys. Who was it? Juan. Juan was playing. That was his last, his, his, uh, his second year. Yeah, Juan, Juan Mitchell was on that team. And who else? I don't think, I don't think Tony was on that team. I, I always thought, and, and you know this better than I do because you live through it, but, you know, there was a great esprit de corps about going to SI, right? This, you know, this spirit. And it was, you know, captured a lot in the basketball games at Keysart, right? The yeah. place was just rocking. Right. And I, um, I always thought that those those teams in like seventy five, seventy six, really kind of flipped the switch. Yeah, they because you had some talent. Yeah. And you guys were really good. Yeah, for yeah. real cohesiveness. Yeah, and there was just a uh, yeah. you know there was yeah a great student body. Yeah, we worked we worked hard on that. You know, I I I d- didn't place a lot of value on uh, on on the team but I I, I did it without, without knowing it mm-hmm. you know I, I said recently to somebody you know that 74 team should have won it and but they played really hard and they were a really tough hard-nosed group of kids and I think they inspired kids to want to come and play mm-hmm and we, you know, and uh, then he started getting some kids to come. To yeah, play. yeah, that want to play, and then, um, um, and then seventy-five team was a powerhouse. Yeah. But you know, as a coach too, over the years, if you do a pretty good job, if you get the most out of your kids, whether you finish first or last, you know, you, you people want to watch your team. They want to come and watch your team. So. And that started to happen a little bit, you know. And uh, my best coaching jobs were not with my championship teams. My best coaching jobs were done with some teams that were, you know, pretty mediocre. Mm-hmm. You know, in you know, lot that my '72 team and uh, the '69 team. I had a Steve Langto and Rick Murphy mm-hmm. and yes, uh, yeah. Billy Portman and Steve Becker and those guys. They were good. You know, and like you were saying, you look back on them and say, you know, these couple of things there, you could have won a couple of close games. But those are the teams that I really felt because you had to squeeze every basket or every ounce of energy out of the kids, you know. And that's the unknown of coaching. That's why coach of the year stuff doesn't mean a thing to me. Doesn't mean a thing to me. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I sat there sometimes and I'd read the paper on coach of the year and and it'd be a WCL guy, and I go, I did a better job than that guy did. <laughs> Nobody knows it's of me because yeah. I'm bragging to myself. I I, uh, I got to tell a story because it involves you. First time, first SI thing I ever did, I was either seventh or eighth grade at Our Lady of Mercy. And Tim Cavanaugh was working parking right down at Westlake Park, takes me, I don't know why to this day, but says, come on, we're going to a basketball game, takes me to the SI Reardon game at Keysar. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. You know, yeah. guys were hanging off the rafters, you know, and Reardon was really good. And that, and it was not, I, I think it was late. It must've been 78, 79, something like that. And 
uh, SI didn't have a great team. Yeah. And uh, SI was down by 20 at halftime. I think 79. Crawford was on that team. Yeah, right? And we did men among yeah. boys. Yeah. Well, SI kind of chips away, chips away. Down seven with 39 seconds left. Oh, 77. And, and win, you know? It was, it was, the place was going bananas. That, that was the that was the crazy. Was that McGoldrick? No, that was, well, you know, it happened two of those games. Oh, the one you're talking about against Rudin. Yeah, that was McGoldrick, LaRocca, yeah. Selva, Chris Moscone, yeah. Steve Scalini. Yeah, that game. And that was without the three-point line. Yeah. And Nick LaRocca just started, and, you know, and we, we stole the ball. I substituted I substituted Roberto and Chris Moscone. And they were so, juniors, right? And, yeah, they were yeah. juniors in the fourth quarter, 78. Yeah. And I took them out for, I forget who the starting guards were. And they they stole the ball. <laughs> bang, bang. Layup, layup. layup. And that, yeah. yeah, and then it changed again, and we won that game. But yeah. the last play was because Kevin Eagleson was coaching, and they still had the lead, and there was about six seconds to go, but they were just falling apart, mm-hmm. and the place was ripping apart. It was so loud, Joe, that uh, I I couldn't. You know, I could hear everything and I couldn't hear anything. It was so loud and there was just echo in my ear. And and who was the student body president of 77, the big kid? Uh, was that Rocca? Yeah, Greg Rocca. You know, and, and so at that, just, just before that happened, they called timeout. So I said, you know, just do what you can, do the same thing. And this kid from Reardon just panics and he throws the ball in the middle of the floor at some guy he sees. Brad Levesque comes out of nowhere hmm. and he's just coming into his own. You know, he was just, just coming along and he takes off the top of the key and lays it in. Hmm. And that's, you know, and then the, the guy from Reardon standing under the basket, here's the basket. <clears throat> and it's kind of trying to take a charge and he, <laughs> and he, and he runs right into the guy. I go, Oh, don't call and I'd look at that. It was Owen Cachevero's reference, and he goes, plot. <laughs> so now we're ahead, and there's no time on the clock, and he's got to shoot a free throw. And Greg Rock is in my face, and he he's hyperventilating in my face. He's going, Mr. Drucker, Mr. Drucker, we won, Mr. Drucker. So I go, Greg, get out of here. Because <laughs> I think there was one second left, but it was complete. Man. Unadulterated <laughs> mayhem in there, and then the other one was the other one was uh, uh, that was the, yeah that was the Brad Levesque in '77, and then there was the Nick LaRocca one the next year, and that was the one that you saw, yeah. and uh, that was you know, we were down 17 in third quarter or something yeah. like that, just getting beat up, and, crazy, yeah. But then, you know, you get into the '80s, and you know now you're getting some. You get some guys who can really, you know. Yeah. Come. Well, I got 48 and Middlebrooks. They yeah, changed a yeah. lot. Tilgen, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Jeff was good. And you had some, you know, great uh, strength. And I always look back at those days. Basketball was SI, Sacred Heart, and uh, and Reared a little yes. later. Yeah. But the great, um, 
Uh, in fact, I'll never forget, uh, Sacred Heart had a really good team uh, and with uh, Eric White. Yep. And yeah. a year ahead of Levy. Yeah. And and he, he took it to Levy the first yeah. time they ever played. Yeah. And Levy was a junior. Yeah. And then you kind of got in the Levy's head and said, Levy, this yeah. is God gave you Middlebrook as a, as yeah. a name because you own the middle. And yeah, yeah, that yeah. guy does. And Levy beat him the second time. Yeah, Le- and Levy. they were teammates together down at Pepperdine. For yeah, years. they were. Had a good run down there. Yeah, they did. But those, that was, that you know, the epicenter of high school basketball uh, was really around those three teams. And yeah. Three programs. At the time. It was. It was. And it was an exciting t- time. Um, I always credit Paul Fortier a lot when you were a, what were you with? Sophomore. You were yeah. a sophomore, and we brought him up for uh, playoffs. That was the year we lost with 48. We lost to Jeff at Keysar in a big upset. And we didn't play badly either. They were out of their mind. But uh, I brought Levy up, and Levy was kind of floundering around, still trying to find himself. And Paul Fortier just adopted him. And Ennis and all those guys. You know, they saw the raw talent, and they they just said, "Do this, do this, do this, do this." You know, and I was barking at them too, and they did. And he just kind of kind of woke up. You know, I uh, Levy was was really a story uh, from the, the beginning to the end. Uh, so yeah, it was it was an exciting time coaching. You know, such a big part of my career here. But you knew it was time when you you were done, right? Yeah, I did. Ironically, uh, yesterday I was talking to this kid from uh, Mike Siebert, and that's a Sullivan kid, and um, we were talking at Joe's yesterday, and he said, uh, my father-in-law was Lou Botmaw. I go, well, I knew your father-in-law. I said, and I know Wayne, and I know Paul, his sons. And he goes, he married the sister. I forget her name, too. Anyway, Lou Botmall, after I got the job and I was very young, I saw Mr. Botmall. They were friends of the LaBeouf family and all that. And he was at City, still working. He was the, like the president of City College. And then they had Botmalls on Portland. Yeah, they, Portland, they, right? they had the restaurant and all yeah. that. That was Paul. But Mr. Botmall comes up to me and he goes, Bob, don't forget this. Coaching is a young man's business. Hmm. And he burned that into my head and I didn't forget it. And then plus when my father died at 58, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm running around like a madman on the sidelines and I'm tired, so tired at the end of the year, I'm getting Mm -hmm. sick for a week in February when it's crunch time. I wasn't coaching well in February because I was beat. Yeah. You know, and I said, now's the time. Yeah. You, know, you, you mentioned to me one time, and I, I want, want you to touch upon this just because I think it encapsulates your SI career more. Everybody obviously thinks about you with basketball, but you were much more than basketball. You're, yeah. we're not, you know, people, students yeah. loved you as a teacher. Yeah, you're a counselor. And you coached golf. And you and Deck had a great run coaching girls basketball. Oh, that was so much, so fun. much fun, right? Yeah, yeah. But you said to me one time, I've been blessed to have different careers and jobs with the same company. Yeah. Who gets to do that? Yeah. And all these true. different hats and talents you got to explore. Yeah, that's true. 
basketball is a very public one, but you know, talk about the the, the bigger p- uh, picture. Of I had a teacher at USF who helped get me through USF, and he was a good man. But the biggest flaw in his he, he would re- and he was a history teacher, and he, he would refer to the coach approach of teaching history. And that used to really annoy me. <laughs> and I swore on his Jesuit cassock that if I got a teaching job, I was going to be as good a teacher as I could be. So after I got through the first three years of world history and uh, McFadden gave me a U.S. history course, he gives me a, he gives me a couple of U.S. history courses, Frankie Charles, with sophomores, sophomores. So that was good for me because I really wanted to teach American history. So, and Frankie Charlton was in that class because he, he had he he was a senior, but he had to take U.S. history. So anyway, and then he gives me another class for a bunch of guys, about thirty-five guys that are seniors that hadn't taken U.S. history and they needed another class. So he gives me uh, U.S. history eighteen sixty-five to the present. So now I'm teaching these sophomore guys from the beginning, from the revolution on, and I got these guys from the Civil War on, and I'm going, and I'm living in Park Merced, and I am burning the midnight oil. <laughs> Just to keep up. Yeah. And Dan Fouts was in that class, too, as a matter of fact. But uh, so I, I got a text. I got the text from from Cal, actually. It was, uh, uh, I forget uh, I don't know if I still have it. Anyway, it's a really good book. And I learned a lot of history. But I was just as determined to be a good teacher as mm-hmm. I was a basketball coach. And that was a that was a big part of it. And it's it's all about preparation, you know? To go in there and I love being around the kids for one, you know, and making them happy and making them get their attention and Push them when you need to. Push them when you need to, you know. But there's also, I think, a. I know when I first started teaching here, there's a certain level of expectation as a teacher. Like, you you kind of feed off each other, right? you do. If you got Chuck Murphy down the hall, who's excellent at the craft, you want to keep up, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, and there were guys that... You know, that we we talk all the time. Yeah. You know, and it, and, it, and it was actually better in the later years. You know, my last three years when I taught, last four years when I was teaching USF, there was uh, Dick, uh, uh, not Dick Ryder, but Dick, the guy we hired from Lowell who was retired. Anyway, he was he was a really good teacher, and we spent a lot of time together. But we did, you know, we, you know, we we collaborated a lot. And the other thing I did was, which I used to do, is when we get to a particular topic in in history, I would go find, and uh, Rich Haber and I talked about Mm -hmm. this years ago, I would find the best authors I could find, the best experts on that period. You know, like I wrote some down today, like, I'd read uh, Edmund Morgan on the Puritan Dilemma, and it would be Jackson, a guy named Rimini, who was really good. And there was another Jackson book, Schles- uh, Schlesinger, Schlesinger, yeah, yeah that yeah. he wrote. And then I used to 
Bruce Catton for U.S. history, yeah, plus a million history. other guys. They did all that. So and then, then, yeah, and then a guy named Hofstadter did reform and and in politics. So every every night when I prepared, I would take those books out, and I would read a segment of them, mm-hmm. just looking for that little extra ingredient to add to the you know the textbook mm-hmm. version of it. And and find different ways to start your class, because I think starting a class, you know, getting them in there, getting them settled. You know, a lot of guys, the bell would ring and kids are fussing and this guy's up there talking. I'm going, you know, I'd walk by class. Don't start now. Yeah. (laughs) Shut them up. They'll get their attention. You know, and you don't want to start the same class the same way every time. You know, you want to vary that. So I started, you know, building my own techniques in there. But the the extra reading was really important for me because the, the difference in, in his, re, reading history is how they write it. Mm-hmm. That's the whole deal. It's like two guys can write the same book and say the same thing. But, you know, it's how they write it, mm-hmm. the style that just go, oh, man, that's so beautifully said. And you grab that you know, that phrase or that sentence yeah. and, and, and you use yeah, it, yeah. it's the catalyst for it. So what would you, so um, total, how many years? 42. 42. Obviously, you know, th- things change and evolve. In fact, one of the things I love about our alma mater is um, that we have grown and changed over the years. I mean, what school is six different campuses? I mean, it took a, some hutzpah you know, extricate ourselves from the Standing Street campus to the Sunset District and really create a different school and then it became more regional and obviously going co-ed and, you know, always, I think, pushing and pushing to better educate, you know, absolutely, you know, to, to reach the students at, at where they're at today. But when you peel it back, what do you think are the, the kernels of Jesuit education? What's in, what's in the secret sauce of what happens at, a Jesuit school and what happens at SI? Well, I think I think the number one thing, and we've seen it expanded in, even into the public school system, is probably service. You know, it wasn't that when we start, when I started, but I think that's evolved out of all the work that JSEA has done mm-hmm. and what we've done with our kids and what we see them doing now in terms of service, you know, so that gets them out of their comfort zone, right? You're, yeah. you're, you're in service to yeah. somebody that's out of your yeah. geography and comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. And that just opens your eyes. Yeah. Level, right? It was like me being in the army. Yeah, I was doing, exactly. you know, I mean, I'm going, Oh, this is it, you yeah. know, and I'm envious of those kids that got to do that because yeah. we were taking some other goofy course which we didn't need yeah. you know when we could have been out there too yeah there's that no substitute for experience yeah like that, right? yeah so i think i think that's one uh, the other one because uh, i thought about this question was um i think one of the things is finding the truth you know, michelle referred that to her to that remarks, in, yeah, in yeah, remarks yeah, the other day and well. i wrote her and I said, what's more important than the truth in this day and age? Mm-hmm. I mean, how would I have to change my history course today, Joe? Could I go in there and taught what I taught 15 years ago? 
with that book. Well, I, our book was better than one years than now. But anyway, but I couldn't. Yeah. I'd have to, you know, with what's going on in the country, you know, you, there are all kinds of examples mm-hmm. of how the country started and what they were trying to do and yeah. what's not <laughs> happening now, you know. I mean, uh, basically. Uh, so I think that, I think, you know, with all the disinformation anyway, but even without that, finding the American people are struggling trying to figure out what kind of a country they want to have. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that, and that they're, they're not doing a very good job because people don't read. They don't, mm-hmm. our newspapers are gone to hell in the handbasket. All these small towns throughout the country, they don't, they don't have, they don't have a headline to read. Yeah, they're not any different. Well, I was just talking in the conversation last night. When we were growing up, you had three major networks, and you know, and this is the naivete of, of growing up and being a kid. You just assumed that the what came out in the press was unbiased. Yeah. And now you have to, you know, consume your media with a lens to its bias. You know, what's yeah. the what's the the tilt or the angle? That they that it, you know comes through. Now there's some you know that's just good critical thinking too. You know, yeah, you sure. Understand the source you're getting your news from and balance that out. But when you're growing up, we just assumed it was going to be unbiased. You know, yeah, that's not exactly. the case anymore. Yeah, no. So those two things. I think the other the other slogan that always is important is you know finding God in all things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's you know and and they as they said it begins with prayer. You know, that's a tough sell. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it's it's really, really true. And to, that's the first week of the exercises. Yeah, I think, and I think we've, we we continually find ways to make that relevant to our kids today. Yeah. Right? yeah. It's obviously different today than it was in 1954 when it oh, started as a freshman, yeah. right? So how, you know, how do you make your uh, a faith life and a spiritual life relevant to 16, 17, 18 months yeah. today, and I think our, our folks do a nice job of that. They do a really good job of that. Yeah. You, know, you see it. And then the service part of part of it is uh, a big part of that, you know, when they see what's going on and think about what they have compared to what they've yeah. seen that day. So, um, yeah, so everything has changed, but we've done a really good job from 1965 and 54 when I first entered. You know, it's totally, totally, everything has changed for the better. Uh, look, any last thoughts, uh, kind of final uh, thoughts or anything I didn't ask you about that I should have? Uh, no. Let me think here. Mm. No, I just, you know, the only thing that, that Kathy Drucker is the, the spokesman for this is I'd love my job. You know, and it, you, we tell the kids all the time, find something you love. Mm-hmm. And not everybody gets that luxury. Mm-hmm. But as Kathy Drucker used to say, especially when I retired, he never went to school saying he didn't want to go be there that mm-hmm. day. Yeah, I couldn't yeah, wait yeah. to get there and get in the <laughs> teacher's room and, you know, have a few laughs with Decker and Isham and Vollard and whoever else was in there. And, you know, that's a... The, the one of the blessings we had. Well, as a uh, you know, especially when I started as a young teacher, and you're kind of figuring out whether you want to make a career of it or not. Yeah, yeah. And as, you know, then as you get deeper into it, it becomes more of like a vocation. Um, 
I, you know, I had guys like you and the Murphys and Takeens and Deckers. You, you look to people that, you know, are family people and you say, I can, I can do that. And I want to yeah. do that. Yeah. And yeah. it was, it's a, it was a nice, it's a great, uh, great yeah. profession. No, we, you know? I mean, we, the, all those guys were alums and we loved the school when we were here and we loved it even more when we were, it got to exercise some influence, yeah. you know, yeah. and we had families and we spent a lot of time together okay. and that was, it was really, it was really a good time. Um, so I've always been grateful for the fact I was a teacher and a coach. You know, what's more satisfying than yeah, right. making a bunch of kids happy and some parents happy once in a while, too. Uh, well, listen, really appreciate the time. This was fantastic. Loved it. Loved it. Great. Uh, yeah. Uh, encapsulates growing up in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. It was so great living in the sunset. I mean, we had, as I said, we had a bunch of kids, but... That that gymnasium thing. When you asked me about this, and and you know, I realized how how much of an impact the gymnasium yeah, right. had on all of us, all these kids from every part of the city playing basketball or volleyball or a tennis or a ping pong tournament, and you just meet the shape of the gym. Ball. Yeah, and all, all all colors and, and all shapes and sizes, and. Uh, uh, we, we found community in different different ways, but uh, it was uh, we were lucky. Well, great note to end on. Thanks. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Joe. That was fun. Thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions for future interviews, please send them our way. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please like and recommend this podcast. The SI Genesis Podcast is a production of San Ignatius College Preparatory in San Francisco, California. To learn more about the school and Jesuit education, visit www.siprep.org. Thank you.